Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in the original language in which it was given. Our language is um, the whole of the scriptures. And we have the promise in faithful translations of the original that it remains to us the authoritative word of Jesus, our King. So listen as the Lord Jesus speaks to you through the hand of the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, that can be also rendered bishop, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Can you all hear me well enough? Is that the mic where it needs to be? Okay. Pray with me. O Lord, we rejoice that you are a speaking God who has spoken down through the ages and continues to speak through your written word when it is read and when it is preached. You, in particular, Lord Jesus, are the great prophet of the church who inhabits the preaching. Uh, And by your spirit, you uh, apply the preaching to the hearts of your people and provide illumination uh, as to the meaning of the text to the preacher and the congregant. Would you please, O Lord, preach to us, would you, through the hand of the Apostle Paul and his writings, which are your writings, would you please communicate what we need to know? Um, and would you please speak to us in our various points of need? We all have different needs. And though this topic is uh, a particular topic, this passage is on a particular topic, you can use it, Lord, to to affect us in, um, in ways that uh, 
perhaps wouldn't be thought of by ourselves or by me. Would you please use it in those ways, in ways that would be helpful to your people to be better uh, believers, servants of yours, and that would bring honor to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, uh, I know that uh, when I was a boy, I uh, gave some thought, when I was pretty young actually, to what I wanted to be when I grow, grew up. Uh, perhaps you have thought about that. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you have, though. Maybe you thought, um, back in the old days, little boys and girls seemed like most of them wanted to be astronauts. That was the big thing back in the 1970s, be an astronaut. That means be able to go to the moon or uh, go up in a space capsule uh, way far up. That's not so such a big deal anymore, apparently. But maybe you've thought about it yourself. Maybe you've thought about what you want to be when you grow up. Um, maybe you want to be a carpenter or a, a nurse or a doctor, or a salesman, or a farmer, or, I don't know, engineer, um, whatever. Maybe you've thought about that, and if you haven't, that's okay. But many boys and girls think about those things. I wanted to be an architect, by the way. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) Uh, At any rate, the thing about all those choices about things you might want to be when you grow up, um, in order to be those things, most of those things that I just mentioned, carpenter, doctor, uh, salesman, that sort of thing, most of those things, there are certain requirements that are necessary. I'm going to use a big word here to describe them, qualifications. Things that qualify those people to do those jobs. And not everybody can be a carpenter. If a person happens to be missing an arm or two, he can't be a carpenter, more than likely. He does not qualify to be a carpenter, or she isn't qualified to be a carpenter. Uh, other things, uh, uh, nurses need to be, or doctors need to have a lot of training. They need to know a lot of things about the human body in order to be a, a good nurse or a good doctor. If a person doesn't have that kind of training, she shouldn't be a nurse or a doctor, or he shouldn't be a nurse or a doctor. So there are qualifications. There are things that need to be true of the person in order for them to do that job uh, effectively in the right way and be, be good at what they, are, what they are doing. Well, the same applies, children, to the offices of elder and deacon in our church. You know, Jesus created those two offices, of elder and deacon in the church uh, to uh, to be a blessing to God's people, and all and uh, and Jesus wishes to rule over His people through the elders in particular in the church. Um, but elders and deacons as well as we'll see the next time we're in this uh, in this chapter, uh, God has set forth certain qualifications, certain things that need to be true of uh, a person who is going to go into that office, either as elder or as deacon. Today, we're going to focus on the office of elder, which uh, our text, uh, Peter, uh, not Peter, Paul, refers to as um, overseer or bishop. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Uh, but you need to understand, children, that this is what elders are supposed to look like. Not perfectly. Don't put us too high up on a pedestal. 
no elder is perfect or anywhere close. So uh, this is true of uh, any person. Uh, we are all very flawed, uh, and we leaders are all flawed. Uh, but we need to exhibit, uh, those who are elders need to exhibit uh, to a significant degree the qualities that are mentioned in this passage that we're looking at, and likewise next week, or next time we're together, of deacons in, the, in verses 8 through 13 of this chapter. And so listen for what God wants in your leaders. Uh, and by the way, if we don't exhibit some of these qualities as well as we should, I won't say this to you children necessarily, but this is true of you adults. Call us on it. Uh, We need to be held accountable too. Do that respectfully, please. But you may speak to us uh, when we are exhibiting less than Christ-like behavior in a significant way, uh, contrary to what we read in this passage. So, let's look at the passage now. Before I do, actually, before I give you the two two points from it, just remind you, Paul uh, just finished in the previous chapter, the uh, the last uh, uh, six or seven verses there, verses 9 through 15. Paul has just finished discussing uh, with his readers what is and what is not appropriate in the church in terms of, uh, as far as the head of the church, Jesus is concerned, with regarding roles and responsibilities in Christ's church. He's been speaking of that, and he says certain things are uh, appropriate or not appropriate for women versus men to do in the church. Um, And he talks about that with respect to worship, but it also applies to offices that we're going to get into now. In fact, we're moving into a discussion of the two offices, and so the end of chapter 2 is very relevant for what he's about to say now in chapter 3. and I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, but now to the two points that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. First of all, we're going to look at encouragement that is given by, by Christ through Paul. Encouragement that is given to seek the church office of overseer slash elder. And then we are going to look at qualifications as the second point for the church office of overseer. So first, the encouragement to seek the church office of overseer, and then the qualifications of the church office of overseer. So, he says there in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. And here's the statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, can be translated also bishop, it is a fine work he desires to do. What is an overseer? Well, it is, as I've already indicated, I believe I said this already, it is synonymous with the office of elder. An overseer is an elder. They are one, describe one and the same office. How do I know this is the case? I'm going to tell you now in the next minute or so. Um, Elder, the word elder, uh, English word elder, is a translation of the Greek word presbyteros, where we get the word presbyterian from. You can hear it, presbyteros, uh, which means elder, presbyterian. We are governed by elders. That's why when our church was originally named, it was named the Presbyterian Church, because we, were, uh, we named it after the way we are governed, the way we govern ourselves. So elder is translation of presbyteros, and the word overseer or bishop is an English translation of the Greek word episkopos, where you get the word episcopal from. Episcopal Church gets that word uh, from the word episcopos. So, with that in mind, 
in Acts chapter 20, we're not going to turn there right now for the sake of time, but Acts chapter 20, verse 17, there in that passage, Paul is in Miletus, and he is about to address certain elders. Uh, in verse 17, they are, they're said to be elders, and the word presbuteros, actually the plural presbuteroi, is used there. And he's about to address these elders from Ephesus who have come to meet him at Miletus. And they are men who are later in that discussion who he himself refers to in verse 28 of that chapter as overseers, as episcopoi. So the very same people that he called, that are called, uh, uh, el- uh elders, presbuteros, uh, presbuteroi in verse 17 are called episcopoi in verse 20. Eight of that same chapter. Exact same folks. Described two different ways, thereby an equation of those two terms, meaning essentially the same thing. Likewise, in uh, Titus 1, Paul in that chapter speaks of elders, uh, presbuteroi, in verse 5 of that chapter, and it's all about um, elders there, the qualifications for elders. And But then he refers to those same individuals as overseers, as episcopoi, in verse 7 of that same chapter, again, equating the two uh, terms with one office. So I hope that's uh, sufficiently understood by you. They're the same thing. Uh, so when you, hear, when you read overseer or bishop in your, in, your, uh, in your Bibles, just know it's talking about, we use the term elder more regular, uh, with greater regularity in these, our circles. So it's talking about an elder. So, um, in verse 1 here, Paul, Christ, the head of the church through Paul, is encouraging people to seek the uh, church office of overseer. And the, those in particular whom he is encouraging to aspire to this office are the men in the church. You look at verse 1 there, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. He doesn't say man or woman. He says, if any, man. And, of course, we learned in verses 9 through 12 of the last chapter, actually 9 through 15, that Christ, through the pen of his apostle, there in that that section, he forbade Christian women in the church from instructing Christian men on on subject matter of a religious nature. He says that's not allowed uh, by him or by Christ. He is speaking as Christ's uh, an extension of Christ at that point as an apostle of the church. Uh, we don't have apostles anymore. They were unique. Uh, and uh, he says that's not allowed in, in the church. Uh, women are not allowed to, uh, to teach uh, men in the church. He also, in that same passage, forbids women from exercising spiritual authority or leadership over men in, uh, in his church. In that same passage in verse uh, 12 in particular there. Of First uh, Corinthians chapter, First Timothy two, rather. Um, the clear implication of what that uh, passage said to us, what Paul wrote there, is that Christ is prohibiting women from holding the office of elder and slash overseer in His church in the New Testament age. And why is this so? Why is that clearly implied? Well, because elders are the individuals whom the head of the church has entrusted with the responsibility of um, shepherding and ruling over his people. You say, is that true? Is that true, what elders are supposed to do? Yes, it is true. Two places, we're going to look quickly here, but we're going to go back to Acts 20 again. 
And in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, again, I'll read it this time to you. I didn't last time, just referred to it. But Acts chapter 20, verse 17, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. There's the word again. And then if you go down to verse 28, he's speaking to these elders, um, and he says, Be on your guard, be on guard rather, for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or rulers to shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he, notice God, purchased with his own blood. Uh, God, uh, Christ is, is, that's a proof text for the deity of Christ right there. Um, so, so the elders are clearly have the responsibility of overseeing God's people, ruling over and governing God's people, and shepherding them, pastoring them, caring for their souls. Um, and Paul says only women, excuse me, only men are, no, he, he says women are not allowed to do that in 2.12. Uh, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so the clear implication is that w- women must not do that because uh, God has called the church to be ruled by elders and pastored by elders, and elders need to be men. And likewise, the elders also are the ones not only who shepherd and rule over God's people and govern them and lead them, but they are also the ones to whom Jesus has given the responsibility of teaching God's people. This is evident from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where here, this is a second list of qualifications for the eldership, and he says here in verse 9 that they must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he, and he's talking about a singular elder now, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, meaning that sound doctrine. And again, this is the teaching function, and it's given here clearly uh, and, and also fairly clearly in the passage we're looking at, but even more clearly here in Titus, to the elders, to the overseers of Christ's church. And we, again, just deducing what we've read uh, and uh, applying what we read in 2.12, that means that men uh, need to be the ones who aspire to this office because they are the only ones that are allowed to fill that particular, uh, this particular office in his church. And he says there in verse 1, Paul does, and Christ through him, it's a good thing to desire this, to aspire to the office. Why is it good for men in the church to aspire to the office of, and think about the possibility of them possibly serving Christ in this capacity in the future, if they're not already officers? Why is it a good thing? Well, that's pretty obvious, I think, isn't it? Because Christ has chosen, as I've already indicated, to rule over and pastor his, uh, his people through under-shepherds, whom he raises up from within the church. And um, our king, Jesus, uses means to raise up such under-shepherds. I'm referring to elders here as under-shepherds, same thing. Uh, he uses means to raise up such individuals. And among those means that Jesus uses 
is giving certain qualified men in the church a desire to serve him in the capacity of the eldership. Another, by the way, another one of the means that Christ uses to uh, identify who is to be one of his uh, under-shepherds or elders, um, one of the, another one of those means that he uses is by causing the people of God, that's you, to recognize those men in his church who have the necessary qualifications as set forth here. And in First uh, Titus, uh, Titus 1, uh, who have the necessary qualifications to fulfill the uh, pastoral and teaching responsibilities associated with being a good elder. So those are two means that he uses. And we refer to them as the inward call and the outward call. The inward call of the, and the man who, who increasingly feels a desire to serve the Lord in that capacity. And the approbation, that is the, the church acknowledging, yes, we see in you who have an interest in this office, we see in you the, the necessary qualifications sufficient to assume the office. And those are the means that Christ uses to identify who will be uh, leaders in his church. And so you men here who are here today, and those of you who might be listening at home, um, are encouraged to aspire to the office of the elder slash overseer. So long as you do that with right motives. That is to say, out of a love for Christ and a desire to serve him, and out of a love for God's people and a desire to serve them. Those are right motives. And only those, I would suggest, for uh, aspiring to the office. Um, And the second uh, reason, um, uh, or a second, if you will, um, a qualifier, I'll use that word, not only are you to aspire men to the office of elder uh, with right motives, but also you are to do so <clears throat> uh, in humility with an understanding that Christ has to confirm any inner sense of calling that you may have to that office or the office of the deacon too by means of his spirit eliciting approval from God's people. You see what I'm saying? You have to be willing. In other words, there are people who say, uh, I, I've heard heard this, you know, oh, the Lord's called me to preach. <clears throat> Usually not people in Presbyterian circles. Uh, but um, but I felt the call. Uh, I walked down the aisle and I felt the call to preach. I want to, I want to be a minister. And that's all well and good, but if the church says, actually, we appreciate your enthusiasm, but we think you can serve the Lord in other ways other than being a minister, uh, you know, uh, if the church says that, then the man needs to go, yes, Lord, I understand. Um, I need to serve you in other ways. Uh, and that's fine. It's wonderful. There are many different roles, that, uh, uh, ways in which God can use his people, and, and he wants to use all of us for his glory. Some will be, for some, that will be in the offices of the church, but for others, it will be in other ways. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. God can use uh, mightily somebody who's not an elder or a deacon in his church. Um, But you men should consider, and you young men, you boys, 
should consider uh, that at some point, perhaps the Lord might want you to uh, fill this or uh, the diaconal office in his church. Okay, so we've we've looked at the encouragement. This is the first point, the encouragement to seek the church office of overseer. But in verses 2 through 7, we see the qualifications for the church office of overseer. And we're going to go through those. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on most of them, because most of them are fairly self-explanatory. But we'll spend a little bit extra time on a couple. Um, so first he says in verse 2, that an overseer, an elder, then must be above reproach. <clears throat> now this is kind of um, a general overarching qualification at the front end, that he then fleshes out, so to speak, with specific characteristics or qualities that are now going to follow. But this is kind of the overarching um, uh, quality, if you will, of an elder. He needs to be above reproach. That doesn't mean perfect. Don't do that to us. It does mean that uh, certain things, which I'm going to tell you now, it means that uh, an individual who is an elder must not be open to attack uh, or criticism in terms of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the special specific qualities and characteristics that are now listed. With re- regard to these characteristics, he can't be uh, open to attack or criticism, uh, at least honest attack or criticism. I'll put it that way. Uh, we may well get, uh, in a, in a, you know, uh, attacked uh, unjustly. Uh, in fact, almost certainly will. Uh, but I'm talking about honest criticism or honest uh, uh, critique or um, attack, if you will. Uh, and so that is the uh, overarching quality. And then here are the specifics of what it means to be above reproach the, in the list that follows. So he starts out and he says, um, this means to be above reproach includes being the husband of one wife. <clears throat> now this is what I'm going to spend a little time on here. Um it has been a number of things have been suggested as to what this means. Okay, so we're going to look at a few of them in, in brief. So it has been suggested that this statement, a husband of one wife, requires that all elders be married. Okay, but I hope you see the problem with that. Uh, uh, many of you already. Um, that can't be the case. The, that can't be the meaning of this because Paul, as an apostle of Christ was also, by definition, also an elder in the church, an overseer in the church. The greater offices have all the lesser offices underneath them, and the greatest office in the church, uh, which no longer exists, is that of apostle. An apostle was also a prophet that was under apostle, was also an elder, was also a deacon. And so he had all the offices in his person, including that of eldership. And so he was an elder, and guess what? Paul was single. Never married, as far as we can know. Never given any indication that this somehow, his singleness somehow disqualified him from being an elder in the church, let alone an apostle. In fact, he actually commended singleness over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, he actually commended singleness as a, rela- as a relational state that provides greater freedom for a person to serve the Lord, both men and women, actually. Especially given... Uh, in troubling times. Uh, so this clearly is not what that means. It doesn't mean that uh, all elders have to be married. 
Also, it has been suggested by some that this qualification, husband of one wife, requires that an elder have have had only one wife over the course of his entire life. Can never have been married twice. In response to this suggestion, I'm merely going to quote from uh, George Knight, whose commentary is superb on this, uh, on the pastoral epistles, uh, who I had the privilege of meeting one time before he passed. But anyway, uh, Dr. Knight said this uh, in response to that uh, suggestion that uh, you could only ever have had one wife in your life, uh, even if she passed away uh, and you became a widower for a significant period of time. He says, It would be strange for the apostle of liberty... Paul, he's referring to here, who considered widows and widowers, quote, he's quoting from 1 Corinthians 7, free to be married only in the Lord, meaning remarried, because they're widows, widows and widowers, right? Uh, it would be strange for the Apostle of Liberty, who considered widows and widowers free to be married only in the Lord, and who used this principle of freedom to illustrate his teaching on the law, to then deny this freedom to a potential church officer whose spouse has died, who is a widower, in other words. Doesn't make sense. And that's Knight's point. And it doesn't make sense. So that's off the table, as well as an understanding. It has also been suggested that this qualification requires that an elder not be married to more than one woman at a time, not be a polygamist. Mormons not allowed. Well, for many, many other reasons <laughs> than just polygamy. Uh, and they, you know, most Mormons aren't polygamists now, the, only the fundamentalist churches. But at any rate, point is, um, the practice of polygamy is certainly one of the practices that is ruled out by this passage. It certainly rules out polygamy. But it, it probably rules out more than the practice of having more than one wife at the same time. So the best understanding I am convinced of this qualification, is that it is requiring any potential elder who is in a monogamous marriage to be faithful to his marriage vows, ruling out the practice of sexual promiscuity of any sort. He can't be sexually promiscuous. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? because uh, there are a lot of other passages that make similar uh, comments but that are not put this way, that, uh, that rule out uh, a sexual um, uh, activity outside of the confines of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That is almost certainly what Paul has in mind here. It includes polygamy, but it's greater than just polygamy. It's um, infidelity and uh, being, a, uh, being a practitioner of, of such... Um, uh, infidelity in one's marriage. So he says that's that has to, an overse- overseer has to be that he has to be um, uh, husband of one wife. There we go. Uh, secondly, he also needs to be uh, the New American Standard Version I'm using now. Uh, their translation. He also needs to be temperate. Uh, what this means uh, in the original Greek is. Uh, temperate means sober-minded. Uh, by that, we mean serious. He has to be somebody who is of a serious, more not, not that he can't have fun, but he needs to be serious-minded. Um, he needs to be sensible 
in his thoughts and in his ways, and he needs to be logical in his thinking. All of that is kind of subsumed under the, the concept of being sober-minded slash temperate. And, and, the, uh, and the, also the, work, the word implies that he is also self-controlled, that he is able to control his passions, his tongue, his behavior in general. Uh, vast majority of the time. Again, not perfection, but uh, but uh, something that is truly true of a person. Uh, again, the great majority of the time. So he needs to be sober-minded. He needs to be self-controlled. An elder does. Uh, he must be prudent. The next word there. This means uh, the Greek word here implies thoughtfulness. He needs to be a thoughtful man. He needs to be one who demonstrates good judgment in the way that he speaks and in the way that he acts. And again, like the previous term that I just mentioned, it too also implies self-control as part of his, um, uh, as a characteristic that he exhibits with regularity. Th- uh, next, uh, we are told that he must be respectable. The Greek word here, again, speaks of one who who is respected by others on account of the fact that he is orderly, well-behaved, and virtuous. He's orderly, well-behaved, and virtuous, and therefore others respect him as a result. He must be an individual who has a, a heart for hospitality. Is He's hospitable. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, and Hebrews 13, 2, make it clear that all believers are required to exhibit, exhibit the trait of hospitality. Um, but hospitality must be evident to a heightened, in a heightened way in the overseer or elder. By the way, this is how I would describe all these virtues that are mentioned. Because as I'm going to point out in a, in a little bit, they don't just apply to, uh, to elders. But this is... All these characteristics, most all of them, with one or two exceptions, apply to all of you as well. But they need to be true in a heightened way of Kirk, Cesar Paul, Bill, and myself. And so hospitality is something that we should be um, uh, proponents of, if you will. Next, uh, a, a potential elder needs to be able, have the ability to teach. And again, uh, I'm going to cite here uh, Titus 1.9. That verse that I read earlier, I won't reread it, uh, but which says that the elder must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, who challenge or deny such sound doctrine. That, that wording from Titus is what it means to be able to teach in this shorter list here, or the, the shorter wording that's given in this list here in 1 uh, Timothy chapter uh, 3. He needs to be have be sufficiently uh, doctrinally informed, and he needs to have sufficient sufficient uh, cognitive abilities and lo- reasoning abilities that he is able, with the uh, the doctrinal knowledge that he has and the biblical knowledge that he has, to exhort people on with what is true and what is not true in the spiritual realm and the uh, in the in the religious realm, and able to. Re- contradict or to refute, um, yeah, refute rather, those 
who are challenging such doctrines or denying such doctrines. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to me, it applies to all the elders. I am, I am an elder, I'm, we are called in, Ministers are, in our denomination, called teaching elders as opposed to ruling elders, but we are all elders. So all of these qualities, these characteristics, qualifications, need to apply to all of us, not just the guy who stands up front most of the time. And Paul indicates elsewhere, over in 2 Timothy, and I'm going to read that, uh, that when an elder does have to refute someone in the church or uh, correct someone, or reprove someone in the church who is contradicting sound doctrine in some way, shape, or form, he has to do that in a certain way. And let's read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. And again, he's speaking here particularly to church leaders, and he says, And the Lord's bondservant, he's referring to the church leader there, must not be quarrelsome, but... Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Gentleness is a requirement of the, and we're going to see that in a moment, it's listed in uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're coming to it, but uh, he must do this with gentleness when he is correcting somebody. Um, And again, not perfection. I I keep saying this, but I want you to understand, don't put us up on a pedestal that is uh, unattainable, because we all have men with feet of clay. But it does need to be true to a heightened degree, that's the right language, in the church leader, uh, the elder. He must not be addicted to wine, verse 3 tells us. What he means by this, of course, is pretty obvious, I think. He mustn't use alcoholic beverages in an immoderate or irresponsible manner. He mustn't be a lush or anything close to it. It doesn't require him to abstain from all use of alcohol, uh, but it does require that he use it moderately and wisely. An elder must not be pugnacious. Fancy word for somebody who's prone to violence or bullying. Can't be a bully. Can't be uh, one who likes to start a fight. And I'm talking here more of on the, in the physical realm because we're coming to uh, contentious in a moment, and that's in the in the verbal realm. But uh, somebody who's not prone to violence of any sort, or again being a, uh, act in a bullying fashion. And he says there he inserts in verse three a but. So uh, not pugnacious, but gentle. So he's contrasting what pugnacious is. Uh, prone, somebody who's prone to violence, he says, be the opposite of that. Be someone who is a gentle man. That is to say, what does he mean by gentle? You're, uh, an elder must be mild in his manners. He must be kind to all. Remember we read that in Second Timothy chapter 2 there a moment ago when I read that, uh, that verse in 224 uh, and 5. 
He, he needs to be um, kind. That's part of what it means to be gentle. He needs to be not harsh or severe. That's not being gentle if you're harsh or severe uh, and practice such kind of interaction with other people. Gentle also implies that the, the man is tolerant of the weaknesses and failings of others. That is not, not to quick to jump on people. He must not be easily annoyed. That's also, I think, uh, uh, included in the concept of gentleness. And again, not talking about perfection here. The elder, a potential elder, one who's being considered for the office, must not be contentious. That is to say, not quarrelsome. Somebody who likes to pick a verbal fight or be argumentative for its own sake. Now, having said that, elders need to be able to argue. By argue, I mean argue logically to uh, and, and carefully and sometimes uh, strongly to make points, especially when they're needing to refute somebody. And that can require, that can, that can mean spirited, uh, interaction. That's not what this is talking about. An elder, we're also told he must not be free, he must be rather, excuse me, free from the love of money. Doesn't mean he can't have money. But elders, of course, um, even, uh, in conjunction with the deacons, you know, uh, are around money that people, God's people give out of, because, because of the commandment to give. Uh, we gotta handle that money or direct where that money is spent and how it's spent. And we can't be people who are lovers of money because we gotta handle money, God's money, Christ's money, and be careful about how we do it. So we can't be greedy. We can't be covetous. And uh, this is best summed up, I think, by the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13 when he says in verse 5 that uh, uh, all Christians, he speaks about all Christians here, but again, in a heightened way, this needs to be true of the elder. He must be content with what he has. Content with what he has. And that also, again, applies to more than just the elder. Next, he we're told he must be one who manages his own household or family well, notice, by the way, uh, that statement that Paul makes there, Christ speaking through Paul's pen, that statement assumes that the men of the household are the ones who are responsible for ru- ruling and leading the household. It's assumed. And Paul goes on to make the point that a big part of managing one's household well is keeping one's children in that household under control, he says, with all dignity. That they, the children uh, display dignity and he displays dignity in the way he, uh, in the way he elicits obedience uh, uh, or, or right behavior from those children. Children in the elder's home must be overall well-behaved, respectful of authority. Um, again, not perfection, but uh, there needs to be, when they're under the, uh, under the uh, uh, auspices of the, the father, who is the, uh, being considered for the eldership, uh, they can't be in, they need to be, here's the word, covenantally faithful. 
That is to say, they're not in open rebellion against authority in the home or in the church. That's what, uh, what, uh, what is being called for here when, uh, when it says that uh, they, he needs to keep his children under control with all dignity. They need to exhibit covenantal faithfulness uh, uh, to, to uh, some degree anyway. And why is that important? Why is it important what the, the, the way the children act? Because it reflects on the abilities of the man to fulfill his office, Paul says. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the answer is, he won't. At least not very well. Because he's not taking care of his biological family very well. If he's... If he's uh, uh, this is an argument from the what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater, from his his little family to his big family, and uh, how he manages his household is a good indicator of how he will lead and care for the church of God, the people of God. So that needs to come into consideration too when assessing somebody's qualifications for the office. He must not be a new convert or a new Christian. We see in verse six. can't have recently come to faith in Christ. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that necessary, that he not be a new convert? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Because giving a new convert such great responsibility as leading God's people in the church, that apparently, uh, so says Paul in, in the same verse, is liable to cause him to swell with pride, self-righteous pride. In other words, he can't handle the responsibility due to his immaturity without getting proud about it. That's liable to be the way things turn out if you put a six-month-old Christian in the office of elder because he felt the call. And being overcome by pride could result, uh, if, I'm, if we're understanding what he says uh, correctly here, uh, could being overcome by pride could result in his experiencing the same condemnation that the devil himself incurred, uh, which appears to be what Paul is meaning by that last part of what he says there in verse 6. Not sure what condemnation he's referring to when he speaks of the condemnation incurred by the devil. But whatever it is, it's abundantly clear that it's a bad thing. And there are a couple of additional reasons that are not mentioned by Paul, but I'm going to mention them as to why uh, a new convert shouldn't be uh, a ruler and teacher in the church. Uh, so first of all, a new Christian uh, isn't going to uh, possess all the qualifications set forth in this list. Just not going to happen if he's a new Christian. He might, he might naturally possess some of these qualities, but he's not going to possess all of them. Right there is another reason. Plus, elders need to be sufficiently spiritually mature so that they will be able to set a good example for the flock and so that they will possess the necessary wisdom to rule over and shepherd God's people in a Christ-like manner. And a young convert just isn't qualified to do that, nice as he might be. The final 
uh, quality that Paul mentions, Christ speaking through him, is that uh, an, an overseer must have a good reputation with outsiders, with those outside the church, in other words, with non-Christian folks. That is to say, he must have, uh, they must judge him, uh, judge that his behavior, the elder's behavior and ways, his lifestyle is, even if it's a begrudging acknowledgement, is commendable. Unbelievers need to have, have a say in this, in other words, in who becomes an elder in the church. If, if unbelievers are bad-mouthing a candidate for the office of elder, he's disqualified. Now, let me. Uh, there's qualifications to what I just said there. If they're unjustly uh, you know, uh, uh, slandering him, then that's a different story. But why is it? Why is it, Why is this so important? Why? Why do the what unbelievers think about a potential elder? Why is that such a big deal? Well, again, Paul mentions two things here in verse seven. First is it's necessary that he have a good reputation with them to minimize the chance of his. And this is Paul's wording of him falling into reproach. Uh, John Kelly, uh, in his commenting on this passage indicates uh, what this falling into reproach uh, would entail, at least in part. And he says, unsympathetic outsiders, in other words, unbelievers who are unsympathetic to the cause of Christ, unsympathetic outsiders will put the most unfavorable interpretation on the man's slightest word or deed. And to fall into, to give them uh, fodder to do that, is to uh, is part of falling into reproach. To give them words or deeds that uh, that allow them to uh, uh, put an unfavorable interpretation upon that upon that man um, is uh, disqualifies a man. He's not yet ready. Now he might be down the road you know, five years down the road or something like that, or ten years down the road, but not at that point if that's an issue. Uh, if unbelievers, you know, if he has a reputation of, uh, you know, being able to uh, pound down the most shots at the uh, at the tequila party. I'm just giving a ridiculous example, but you, you get the point. And a second reason why it's so important that unbelievers uh, think at least the, the man is respectable, that he's not, uh, 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 they, they don't treat him with utter disdain because of his behavior, is to minimize the chance of his falling into the devil's snare. If a church elder has a poor reputation among such unbelievers, it is highly unlikely that those unbelievers will keep their opinions to themselves. Right? People love to look for an excuse to, to criticize and condemn and write off uh, church leaders, Christians, professing Christians, especially those who are in, uh, in uh, positions of authority. And so they're going to talk. The unbelievers are going to talk. If they've got something to talk about, they're going to talk. 
And their loud and public mockery of such an unqualified elder may well cause that man uh, to lose his head, so to speak, spiritually speaking. Uh, and the result is liable to be that he's lured into doing the devil's bidding in some sense, inside the church or outside. It doesn't specify that, but the point is he follows the devil's will because of his, he's vulnerable to it because of the bad reputation that he has with outsiders, with unbelievers. And it leads to this falling into the snare of the devil or the the devil's snare, doing the devil's bidding. So all of these are reasons. uh, All of these are, yeah, uh, things to consider when, um, well, and this is my final point here, uh, application they're, these are criteria, all of them are, criteria that need to be in your mind, all of you, if a man is ever put before you as a prospective elder for a vote. You have a solemn, God-given responsibility and duty to carefully examine such a man in light of these criteria and vote in accordance with your conclusions. That's important. The people of God have a say in, and, and Christ, the Spirit of Christ works through you to bring about the right outcomes in terms of leadership in the church when everything's working correctly. And the second thing that is, uh, uh, in closing, in terms of applying all this that we've learned about elders is it doesn't just apply to elders. It's not just elders who are required by God to exhibit the qualifications that we're looking at here. Other than the obvious exceptions, there are a couple uh, exceptions that are uh, in terms of the list, but the vast majority are all required of the rest of us. And God expects all of us to exhibit these virtues in increasing increasing measure as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. We can't look at this list and go, oh, uncontentious, that doesn't apply to me. Or, oh, hospitable, that doesn't apply to me. Or temperate, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to the elders. I'm 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 not aspiring to be an elder. No, that's not an out for men or women. Because you all are required to act that way. I am. Whether I'm an elder or not, we all are. It's just, again, the elder, the elder has to be a, a particularly good example of exhibiting such qualities. Not perfectly, but a good example overall. And this list is for you. You need to ask yourself, where, where am I falling short? Where do I need and we all need more work in all these areas, but where do I particularly need to grow in terms of my godliness? Uh, do I love money a little bit too much? Am I too fond of money? Am I, do I have a, a bit of too much covetousness in me? Um, am I respected uh, because I'm um, serious and uh, sober-minded? Or am I not taken terribly seriously because I'm seldom that way? What have you? The, the, the list... Um, is for you to examine your heart and see where perhaps you need to confess some sin and ask for God's mercy to grow in grace. 
The perfect example of the bishop is, of course, of uh, the overseer and elder is, of course, Christ himself. He is the ultimate holder of this office. He was perfect. And he is also the one who uh, lived a perfect life as the perfect elder, if I can put it that way, to save sinners. The only way you're going to be saved if you are seen by perfect, as perfect by God when you come before him, when you leave this world. He must see perfection in you. Perfect obedience to him. And guess what? None of us has rendered that or will, or is capable of doing so. The only way you will have that obedience and be seen as obedient is if Jesus, uh, the God-man, his perfect obedience to his own law is credited to your moral account so that God the Father sees that when he looks on you and says, oh, I see the righteousness of Jesus when I look at you, whoever you uh, insert your name. That's the only way you're going to get into heaven. And not go to hell. It's the only way I am going to get into heaven and not go to hell. But you must have Jesus Christ. You must be trusting in him. Not just, uh, uh, not just to save you from God's wrath, but also you need to trust him to be the Lord of your life. He's going to change your life if you become a Christian. If you're not one, you become a Christian. He is going to change He demands that he change your life. It will be a great change, but it will be a change. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior and Lord and you're listening to me here in this room or remotely, all you need to hear is you need Jesus. That's all you need to hear. And you're doomed if you don't uh, trust him as your Savior and Lord. And God needs to give you the faith to believe in him, and only God can do that. May God do that if you're listening to me now and don't know him. We'll pray toward that end. Let's pray for that. Join me in prayer. Lord, we do pray. For anyone who might be listening here remotely that doesn't know you savingly, um, Lord, would you please have mercy on his or her soul? Lord, only you can uh, awaken the dead, and that's what an unbeliever is. He's dead, spiritually speaking. Only you can give him a new or her a new heart that will enable him to believe in the Lord Jesus as his only hope of being reconciled to you and forgiven and going to heaven. Would you please give anyone that's listening who is an unbeliever, give such a one a new heart right now, please, and the faith to lay hold of Christ alone for his or her salvation. And Lord, for the rest of us, would you please use this message as we reflect on these qualities that we've considered Would you please use these qualities uh, and your uh, expression of desire to see them in us as goads to cause us to pursue them with greater uh, energy in our lives. And Lord, we can't grow in any of these qualities without your enabling grace, Holy Spirit. Would you please grant us the grace to grow uh, in Christ-likeness, that we might be like our great elder, the Lord Jesus. For your glory. We pray, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful as he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.